The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Click. And we're live. It is Thursday, October 14th, 2021, 5.01 p.m. And I want to start by saying those of us with class have a Costa Rica part of the year and a Washington, D.C. part of the year. Uh, Those of us without class, you know, just don't have that. But uh, our guest today is just starting his DC part of the year. Um, he's been, we've been calling him Costa Rica Bureau of Lawfare for the last six months or so. Uh, but he's, uh, he's back in Washington. Um, and, uh, you know, we're not allowed to have fun anymore. But he he is because he gets to spend, you know, like half the year in Costa Rica. Um, Paul Rosenzweig, been back on the show. You're back on the show. Um, uh, welcome back. We're not allowed to have fun anymore, but we are allowed to have Paul Rosenzweig, who's here to talk to us about cybersecurity monoculture. So, well, Paul, I'm, I'm going to simulate fun for just a little bit in the hopes that everybody else can enjoy. Um, I, you know, What's not to have fun about, you know, being back in Washington? It's true. It's it's great. You're only blocks away from where the uh, the next capital insurrection will happen, uh, <laughs> and it's you know you can sell hot dogs for it. Um, so so Paul, what is cybersecurity monoculture? Well, um, a monoculture is a concept that we borrowed from biology. Uh, Almost everybody who's listening to this probably has heard of uh, the concept of herd immunity. The idea that eventually we may all get COVID and we'll all be sick and then we'll get well and then COVID will die out. A monoculture is kind of the exact opposite. It is a biological herd vulnerability that renders an entire um, community potentially vulnerable to a disease. Uh, Two really good examples from history. In the 1970s, all of the American corn was a, almost all of it, was a single variety of high-yield corn and we had a corn blight that came out and it was a corn monoculture all of that corn was vulnerable to the blight we literally lost 15 percent of the corn in the united states in a matter of weeks and they had to burn a whole bunch of the rest of it in order to um prevent the spread another example that is a, a, a kind of monoculture of biology that probably people are familiar with is the uh, you know, the causes are, are not so well agreed upon but everybody understands that a the largest cause of death amongst the Native American population in the United States in the run-up to uh, the revolution was not war with the white uh, settlers but rather smallpox because the The Native American culture was a monoculture of vulnerability to smallpox. Uh, Biological monoculture risks like that don't persist very long because, of course, eventually the disease that they're uh, awake to uh, comes along and wipes out the the biological niche and the corn goes away and then all of a sudden the rest of the corn that's left survived and, and natural selection means that we don't, that we have 
uh, corn that is no longer vulnerable to corn blight now. And likewise, by and large, the smallpox threat to the Native American culture has, has dissipated over time. That's monoculture, biology. Cybersecurity monoculture is the same thing, translated into bits and bytes. It's the idea that everybody, uh, or almost everybody, uses the same suite of operating systems or a single email communications thing, uh, possibility or a, a single point of sale at a commercial enterprise or a single bank management and transfer system. Uh, the reason in cyber that we have monocultures is really easy to describe. It's cost. It's cheaper. If everybody on Lawfare uses uh, Crowdcast I.O., because we can provision Crowdcast I.O. for in lieu of fun readily, and we can teach new people how to do this, you know, we're never going to have two ways of broadcasting. One is we, we pick one. It's the easiest. We teach everybody how to use it. You expand it. It works great. But if there was a problem in the Crowdcast operating system, and a malicious hacker wanted to stop in lieu of fun from appearing, heaven forbid, um, we'd have no alternatives. We run a monoculture communications platform uh, on in lieu of fun. Now, for us, it's really not that big a deal. <laughs> uh, you know, you could, you know, if we ran out of, uh, uh, if, if somebody whacked us, we'd, we'd be off the air for, for a week, and then we'd fix it, and we'd be back on. Or we'd we change to Zoom or something like that. But if you are a government, say, a national security government uh, agency, uh, monocultures can be bad. Monocultures are risky. That's that's a very long introduction. So let me ask you a couple of a couple of questions about this. Isn't all so? I, first of all, in lieu of fun, does not seem to me to be obviously a monoculture. If somebody hacked Crowdcast and took it down, we could do this on Zoom. We could do it on uh, YouTube. What what makes okay. this? Yeah, what makes it in your judgment a monoculture? Well, the 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 idea of monoculture and the and the real root of it is uh, essentially the difficulty of transitioning on a, a, a quick enough timescale to mitigate the harm. And so, truthfully, you're probably right. In lieu of is that's probably a bad example because we could transition in a in a day or two. Uh, but for example, um, uh, if all of the Department of Defense's infrastructure is run on a single cloud system, as they thought to do with the recently uh, terminated uh, Jedi contract, uh, you know, then that's not a transition you can make readily. Uh, what prompted me to write the article was a report from a consulting company that, um, that said that 85% or more of the collaboration tools used by the US government are from a single provider. And you know, it doesn't say that the provider is bad or anything like that. I, I, you know, I, I don't want to call them, but even our best providers, you know, the Microsofts, Googles, and Amazons get uh, whacked at some point. And yeah. if the government's unitary collaboration tool were taken down, then, you know, the cost of, of in lieu of transitioning to Zoom is near zero and can happen overnight. The cost of the federal government transitioning to a different uh, collaboration platform is not near zero and cannot happen overnight. I mean, uh, I, 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 uh, so I think the perfect example, I guess, of, of, of what you're saying is the solar winds hack that, that so many people um, across the government and it's at Fortune 500 companies use the Orion network monitoring software. And so all you needed to do was you know, infect the the update, and then you got everyone. So that that that's a, like a like a kind of a, a, a nice, I think, um, instantiation of what you're talking about, right? 
Yes, I, uh, that's a great one. The uh, Microsoft Hafnium Exchange hack is another example. Actually, my favorite one that I really want to talk about is Facebook from two weeks ago. Now, for, for you and me, Facebook is not mission critical. Uh, we use it for social media. And when it went down, you know, I transitioned to my Twitter account for most of what I was doing. And so did everybody else, so much so that Twitter yeah, posted a little, hello, everybody, <laughs> welcome, welcome to Twitter. And, um, uh, but it is a mission critical. But I live, as Ben said, uh, at, the, at the top of the show, part of the year in Costa Rica. And oddly enough, in Costa Rica, Facebook is mission critical. Nobody, no business there uh, runs a uh, company-specific web page. It's too expensive. Facebook has made it really cheap. So they provision a Facebook page with their location, their hours, their, their menu if they're a restaurant or their, or their sales list if they're a, if they're a, a shopping company. Uh, directions on how to get there, everything behind it. Then they back it up with pictures of their goods, etc., etc. Even more so, given the comparative weakness of the uh, uh, cell phone service infrastructure there, almost everybody does 80% of their communication on WhatsApp, which was also down. Now, they don't choose WhatsApp for the encryption <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a benefit. They don't care about privacy. It's easy. It it works. It's easy. So when Facebook was down for six hours, uh, uh, a week and a half ago, two weeks ago now, I guess it was. Uh, literally, the communications in Costa Rica ground to well, didn't grind to all because there was the the uh, commercial uh, uh, cell phone service option, but you know it was severely impacted and it's because Facebook has done a really good job of making itself an essential service uh, for advertising and communications as well as what you and I use it for social media love and 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 life and uh, and uh, and so it is to a large degree a monoculture in Costa Rica that is far more essential now at this point, it, it seems important to say one last, well, one more thing about it, which is that for lots of enterprises, that's okay, right? The, you know, if you're a restaurant in Atenas, Costa Rica, where I live, the prospect of being down for a bit, it pisses you off, but the ease of application, the, the low-cost barriers to entry, the, the social network that you get from Facebook is really worth it so it's a risk you take and you know uh, you don't have to worry too much about adverse consequences and the same is probably true of lots of uh, domestic applications here in the United States even within government you know if the uh, Department of Agriculture helpline goes down because the collaboration tool goes offline that's bad and, you know, I don't want to minimize it, but it doesn't, um, it doesn't, uh, you know, burn the house down. Mm -hmm. What concerns me, or what I think of most when I think about this problem, is the national security implications. The idea that uh, some of our national security enterprise operations, whether they're communications, collaboration, uh, cloud software, whatever it is, uh, reside on singular, uh, op depend on singular operating systems, singular tools, singular applications, singular whatever, and thus are singular points of failure. It is, and that monoculture risk is both real and potentially catastrophic. So I have a quick question, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Um, one of the things that I kept thinking about when you were describing Facebook in a different setting outside of the United States is that here it's a market choice and there it's acting as an institution. So that distinction sets up a, um, an interesting 
question on my th- from my end is that the market seems to has selected these singular points because of their efficiencies, because they are perhaps better user like uh, interfaces, and in a area, especially our national security arena, where you have multiple choices, theoretically the best choice has one. Do you think that it's a problem with how we select the the systems that we'll be using? Or do you think that the market has brought the cream to the top and we just need to have more innovation? Well, that's a great question. Uh, first off, I, I think you're absolutely right that by and large, the trend towards monocultures in IT systems is the product of economic efficiencies, uh, whether it's better quality produce or ease of provisioning. You know, the new system is backward compatible with the new with the old one, so the transition is much simpler. Uh, ease of training. You only have to train people on, on one um, system. That's why for years, Southwest Airlines only had 737s because their pilots had to only train to one plane instead of learning 737s and 767s and Airbuses. So there's huge reasons uh, that are perfectly legitimate, ranging from quality to provisioning. Uh, some of those reasons, I, to be honest with you, before I, I kind of transition, are, I think, reasons less of actual economic efficiency than, um, you know, uh, 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 lock-in effects that prevent the innovators from coming in because the costs of transition are too high. And, you know, you get into this kind of uh, idea of, uh, you know, just keep doing what you want to do. But leaving that aside, I think that the answer for me is that in 80% of what enterprises do, those economic factors are, are right and probably are correct in driving the, the choice of a singular system. What I think we haven't actually accounted for enough is um, the risk, the low, low probability, high consequence risks of failure in singular systems in mission critical functionality. Uh, an example, um, I spoke briefly about it earlier. The, um, uh, about three years ago, four years ago, the Department of Defense announced that it was going to transition to a cloud-based system. And they were going to have a single source provider for the cloud. And, and you know, the history came down to there was a big knife fight between Amazon and Microsoft, wound up going to court, and the whole thing got thrown out. And DOD has gone back to the beginning for a whole host of reasons, uh, ranging from, from, you know, uh, allegations of President Trump's interference into the bidding because he didn't like Jeff Bezos and Amazon to other problems with the with the with the. They've reopened the bidding, and what they appear to be saying, which I think is a good thing, if they fall through on it, is they're going to buy two clouds, independent clouds. You know, uh, and so we'll have a a redundancy, and if we have a you know, an Oracle cloud and a Google cloud or a Microsoft cloud and an Amazon cloud or an IBM cloud and an Amazon cloud. If presuming that they don't share the same vulnerability, which is likely since they'll be developed separately, what it means is that uh, adversarial action will not be able to target a single point of failure. And that I think is a good thing. So, so for me, you know, the economics question uh, is really a, a, re- a recapitulation of a lot of what we see in in economics. I, I wrote a paper for about this for Ben ten years ago about how in cybersecurity the externalities of failure are not necessarily all borne by the enterprise operators, but they fall on us, you and me outside. Uh, see Colonial Pipeline is a is a good recent example. Can I? Uh... Um, so I want to I want to I want to make the counter argument that actually we we live 
um, in the United States in a vast um, hybrid digital culture. So, okay, so I, I you know, I, I'm putting this out there um, both as devil's advocate and because I believe it's true. Um, but so let, let's, let's, so from a 35,000 feet level, it looks like there's a monoculture because there's really only two options. Like, let's take operating systems. That's the most important thing. There's Microsoft and there's Apple. Okay, and then on mobile, there's iOS and Android. But like when you kind of go down, you realize, wait a second, there's lots of different kinds of Microsoft operating systems. You know, there's for desktops and laptops. So there's some people running 7, some running Microsoft Windows 10, some 11. Then you have your servers. Like there's a zillion different versions of uh, of uh, the Microsoft server uh, software being run. I, I read somewhere um, that like the reason why ransomware is still such a problem is because people, the, many organizations around the United States are, are, are running um, server message block one, which was phased out in 2008, and it's still vulnerable to the eternal blue um, uh, um, uh, exploit. Um, so, uh, and, and then you have supercomputer. Uh, then you have the Internet of Things and the different versions of Linux, right? There's like thousands of different versions of Linux, and then you have supercomputers, and they run different things. So it sounds to me like oh, and take take um, take power systems, right? So like the grid. Okay, they're running thousand different operating systems, and they have a thousand different network configurations. Go try to hack that. That's going to be impossible because you're not going to be able to figure out. And and the reason why all this is true is because we live in a federal system, which has united. You know, the federal government handles certain things, but not the states and localities handle different things. And then we have a market, and so. I, so anyway, that that was the counter argument to like actually it's not as bad as you think. I, I guess you know, you know I, I would, would say, say sort of, but not completely. Uh, I mean, you sort of I, I, at, at for example the API or application level, the uh, diversity of stuff is such that uh, vulnerability in uh, my Android uh, uh, application is not the same as a, uh, as a vulnerability in your iOS application of the exact same app. Yeah, we both use the same banking app or something like that. Absolutely true. On the other hand, um, uh, first off, you know, at the operating system level, you kind of, you sort of gave the game away a little bit because there are really only two, or if you add Linux, three, you know, major operating systems. So that's a big one. And then the second thing is that really to kind of capture Genevieve's point and turn it back around on you, the monoculture drive is ease of application within an enterprise. Uh, you know, so, uh, you know, the SolarWinds or the Microsoft Exchange, we have these big, bulky pieces that everybody uses because it makes interoperability relatively easy. You are absolutely correct, I think, that there are some aspects of, um, uh, of, of, the, of the domain that are very diverse. The same report that I was talking about, uh, uh, where 85% of, 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 uh, of the government uses a single operating system, um, uh, a single collaborating system, sorry, um, showed that the government uses at least three, if not four, uh, cloud storage, data storage systems. They use you know, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, and Box. And so, so there we have a much more diverse environment for the storage of data that actually um, portends well, from my perspective, uh, for the, secure, the overall security of, of that. Um, to take another one, the same study said that 60%, so not the 85% for collaboration tools, but 60% use only one type of 
email and calendaring communication system. So that's kind of on the edge, right? 60% is not 85, but it's not for diverse people each with 30 to, to 10 to 30% of the market. So, you know, um, I, I think your point to, I would say your point is exceedingly well taken that the uh, degree of monoculture or single point of failure dependence, if you want to call it that, is highly contextual and dependent upon where exactly you are in the domain uh, and who you are. But, you know, sometimes I worry that some of our truly critical structures are pretty darn dependent on single things. So I want to ask you whether interoperability is the enemy of monoculture or the midwife of monoculture. So I, I look at, um, uh, you know, a, not that many years ago, and we would have said basically every document in the world that was created was being created on a single word processor, uh, Microsoft Word. Now, you know, some people still use Microsoft Word, but a lot of people use, uh, you know, that Mac thing, Pages, and a bunch of people like me use Google uh, Docs, and, you know, people can use whatever they want, and they're all interoperable, and it's all pretty seamless. And I can make the argument that, well, that's, that's non-monoculture, right? Um, you have um, Microsoft Word is no longer the sort of dominant platform. Um, and so if, you know, the Russians take down Microsoft Word, we'll all just use something else for a few days. It's not a big deal and it can read our files. Um, on the other hand, you can make the argument that actually the interoperability allows the attack on Microsoft Word to affect all the other platforms in ways that it might uh, otherwise do. And that may not be the case, you know, that might not matter so much with Word documents, but it sure matters when operating systems or browsers are interoperable. And so my question is just like, how do we, how do we assess or how should we assess whether interoperability is the solution or the enemy? Well, that's a, that is also a good question. Let me first say that um, in terms of, of word and document production, uh, whoever invented latex should rot in hell for forever because it is the singularly most impossible thing to use. And I see in the comments that some people are actually using latex. I'm sorry, but I, I just don't buy it. That having been said, latex, just go look it up. It's a, um, a word processing compiler program that allows you to seamlessly add in uh, uh, citations. It's used often in the scientific community. Because you can also I drop was, in formula. I, I'm old enough to remember using ATEX, but uh, not LaTeX. See, Scott L, got that. A, a capital L, A, capital T, little E, capital X. Look it up. Oh, I just and, got a uh, laugh out, an actual <laughs> laugh out loud from Scott. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, and LaTeX allows you to practice safe text. <laughs> Why is it bad, Susan? Because it's really, really hard to frickin' learn. It's not at all intuitive, at least not for me. <laughs> so, in any event, uh, uh, you just gave me a chance to rant on this because I had to learn latex recently to do some work with some collaborators in, in a scientific field. Boy, that was hard. <clears throat> in any event, um, the answer to your question, Ben, is yes and no. Uh, but m mostly, mostly, diversification in, in code is a good thing. Because it tends to make, you know, platforms, operating systems, anything sufficiently different that the ease of attack on one is not the ease of attack on, on another. And so, by and large, I mean, like you said, I don't think anybody's actually going to attack 
the word processing systems of America. Uh, if they did, we'd probably actually benefit from it rather than be harmed. But, uh, but to the extent that anybody wanted to, uh, it is, as I understand it, uh, highly unlikely that a, a flaw in Microsoft Word would transition to a flaw in Latex or Pages or Google Docs or um, any of the others, or vice versa. And so <clears throat> it is likely that having a multiplicity of those um, is good, though, of course, you also are exemplifying immediately the inefficiency of that multiplicity as anybody who has tried to translate a Microsoft Word document into Google Docs and then tried to fix the footnotes um, readily knows. Uh, you know, the, the transitions are not so seamless and it doesn't work, you know, one way or the other. And God help me if you use pages uh, from Apple because it just doesn't, they don't play well with others. So, so we're, we're, we, we get the inefficiency that creates some of the security. Are you going GDF or am I? Okay. So here, here's here's the here's the counter argument. Okay. Um, so at first I was like, no, actually, in fact, the 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 U.S. has a cyber um, uh, diverse culture. I want to do the opposite now. I want to say, actually, it should be more monoculture. Okay. So I'm sorry, sorry to 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 to, to be playing these games, but there's a way in which I the. So I, I was at I was at a conference um, in the summer, and uh, I, I was at DefCon, and there was a there was a talk given and showed that like the big problem with cloud computing is not has nothing to do with the software. It's just that people are really bad at configuring their accounts. They're like terrible at it. Okay, and so everything works right. It's like it's like you know it's like a prison but everyone accidentally leaves the doors open. Okay. And the, 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 so the, 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 the trick, okay, is for people to learn how to use the thing that they're supposed to use. Like that's the trick. The trick is to make things more secure. People need to be really good at you doing at least one thing like the you only the solution, have one job. the solution scott is more powerpoint presentations <laughs> well i mean more well, bits it's always the solution right 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 so those <coughs> say there should be more monoculture because there will be less of these mistakes that come from like too many things to learn what do you think about that uh, a fair point, which is to say that much of the insecurity in the network is the result of, of human um, uh, lack of capacity. Uh, you know, Kevin Mitnick once famously said, uh, there's no patch for human stupidity. And, you know, that was cruel, uh, but it was true. Um, and so you're absolutely right in that way. Uh, on the other hand, uh, once you get past that point, you are um, uh, building essentially what, what we have come to call the Fort Knox problem, which is you're putting all the golden Fort Knox. Everybody uh, hews successfully to a single standard, and you're all great at it. But now you've given uh, the adversary a single target. And unless you believe that you are not only all applying it perfectly but that you've built it perfectly such that it has no flaws and is invulnerable to uh the malicious activity of others you're uh you know you're in trouble i mean uh, here's the example most people use um amazon web services or google or uh, uh or microsoft office 365 precisely because they actually do it better than you and i they, you know, if I provision my system with Amazon Web Services, I have a pretty high degree of confidence that Amazon is doing a, as good a job as is reasonably possible to uh, protect uh, what, we've, what we've given them. Ditto Microsoft, ditto Google. 
But the reality is, is that their very good is still not perfect. So we actually sort of already do what you do to the extent that we offload everything to, to uh, large tech providers like Google, Microsoft, Amazon. They, uh, Oracle, they do excellent jobs. I mean, no, no doubt about it. They've got some of the best technical people around on their payroll and they work very hard every day to to do it but that you know i was reading the other day that there have been uh 15 zero days against microsoft this year and four i think it was against google um i i, I don't quote me on the numbers because i i i i, I, I but it's it's a reality that they are imperfect so even if we decided that one single company or one single government was the best and could do it all perfectly, we'd still be, you know, putting the little, you know, it's like the bummer of the birthmark uh, uh, cartoon with the guy with the little bear with the with the circular marks on his forehead. One bear says, "A yeah, bummer of a birthmark, dude, because you're painting a target on your forehead." You haven't seen that, have you? You're looking at me, Scott, like you don't know what I'm talking about. It's one of those old far side cartoons. One thing, though, when you in response to this point, at what moment do we need to have our institution, to, like, are they supposed to contract with these people who have advanced technical ability and try and do something that's slightly individualized? Are they supposed to build something there on their own? How, like, where, where should the protections or additional protections come from? Whose responsibility is it? Well, that, those are also good questions. Uh, let, let me ask the second of those first. Should we try and build it on our own? We've tried that in the past. The Department of Defense tried to build its own programming uh, uh, system. It, it, programming language is called Ada, named after Ada Lovelace, um, who was the, the you know the famous woman who was at the at the start of the computer era. It was a it was a beautiful and elegant programming language that failed to change quickly enough, and it became it, it was just what you would expect from government. Really great, but late on delivery and behind the times. Uh, so it seems likely to me that we need to that the government need, is most likely best advantaged by provisioning itself from uh, commercial uh, sources that are cutting edge. Uh, what I sort of think is the answer is that we need to go through some kind of risk analysis and ask which systems are so important that we should provision them twice with a known inefficiency or three times. I mean, you know, if you tell me that we should do it three times, I'll, I'll believe you sometimes. Not five, not seven, but, you know, two or three. Uh, DOD's cloud system, I come back to it because it was, it was front of my brain a, a year or so ago before that, that procurement went back to ground zero, would be a classic example, I think, of something that's worth doing twice. Uh, Government-wide collaboration systems possibly uh the nuclear code system definitely <laughs> uh that you know um uh probably like uh uh the federal reserves uh, bank clearing systems probably uh, new york stock exchange i don't know i'm sorry do they not have them i would have imagined that the like the government like mission critical systems would have like out of band, like contingency plans for communication. But I know you would they, know. They, yeah, they do. They do, but they're out of band and thus inefficient. Uh, I mean, uh, one of the most famous is that the that the Air Force has maintained some of its uh, nuclear uh, missiles under analog control, even though the analog systems are you know way out of date. But they're out of. But with that comes in. Efficiency, and so uh, uh, who knows? Likewise, you know they they do. I mean, here here's a perfect example that will be familiar to everybody. Uh, we do an out of band system for maintaining quality control on our elections. It's called paper ballot backup. All right, and it's mission critical essential, as we proved just two years ago, and I'm glad we did it or one year ago, one year and a half ago. Uh, I'm glad we did it, uh, but it is notoriously inefficient. <laughs> uh, 
And, uh, and so uh, in a context where we have to get it right and we have to do so quickly, like say responding to uh, Russian tanks going across the German plains, uh, it would I think be better to have two redundant systems, neither of which was an inefficient uh, analog system, but both of which were digital in nature and therefore usable. All right, so speaking of monocultures, let's talk about uh, John Eastman. About who? Um, about uh, Mr. Eastman. John Eastman. Dean Eastman. <laughs> yes. Okay, you're changing topics on me there, but okay, the, I'm ready. No, 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 I'm, 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 I'm gonna link it. So for those of you who don't know, which is to say all of you, Paul has uh, drafted an article for uh, law review uh, for lawfare uh, on uh, on the case of uh, 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 Chapman Dean uh, John Eastman, uh, which we are getting ready to run. Uh, and I will let him describe the piece if he feels like it. But my question is, is John Eastman an example of a monoculture? In what way? I see what you did there, Ben. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of proud of it myself. <laughs> um, so, all right. So you have um, a, a group of people who have a very powerful incentive to think one way and only one way there are significant flaws in thinking that way, but there's a very powerful set of positive and negative incentives to do so, even at the risk of making yourself, uh, you know, look ridiculous, even at the risk of exposing yourself to bar discipline, even at the risk of, um, you know, uh, going from being a, you know, federal appeals court clerk of and a lawyer or dean at a law school to being, you know, the punchline of a joke on in lieu of fun. Um, I, you know, I mean, there are like there are some downsides to behaving this way. Um, and so I guess my question is, is this the uh, basically a social version of the same effect, whereas we have a sort of a MAGA uh, monoculture. It's extremely brittle um, because, you know, it's not based on things like fact or science or reality. Uh, and but the incentive to comport with it is strong enough that, you know, everybody in that world uses it, even kind of knowing its flaws. And all of a sudden you've got a bar complaint against you in California. Well, you know, that's a, an interesting idea, Ben. Um, I guess I would say no. I know you would want me to say yes, but I would say no. Uh, and, and the reason is this. The hallmark of a monoculture um, and a monoculture risk is its brittleness. I like that word. Its vulnerability uh, uh, to a single catastrophic failure in biology caused by, you know, uh, corn blight in, in the IT systems we've been talking about caused by either an accident like with Facebook's misconfiguration of its border gateway protocol or a malicious actor, see China or Russia. Um, I am not yet convinced that MAGA culture is that brittle. Um, you know, I would personally want it to be uh, and hope it will be proven so, but I would have thought that, for example, you know, January 7th would be the day that the, that the culture cracked and broke. Uh, so it is possible that we will see uh, 
the uh, infection of democracy eradicate the blight of, of magahood, uh, if you will. Boy, I'm straining this metaphor really a lot here just to answer your question. But, but so far, I haven't seen it actually proving to be that vulnerable to truth or facts at all. And, and as such, it is, um, it's almost like MAGA herd immunity from facts. And the opposite of, uh, of that. Now, it, you know, uh, that caveat being, of course, we, it will play out over the next two to four years. And we're all in the, I mean, I thought it was going to end. Uh, in, in November 2020, and then in January 2021, and now here we are in November, uh, October 2021. It hasn't ended yet. We'll see. Um, uh, I like the idea. I like the idea. And it is certainly the case that Eastman is the product of a cultural bubble, of which I have often been a part, um, though no longer. Uh, for those who don't know on the, on the thing, I'm a, a lapsed Republican. Uh, uh, and uh, part of the uh, Reclaiming America group, uh, Renew America movement, RAM. Go, go, go look at Renew America if you haven't seen it. Um, uh, it's quite a nice thing. Um, can, I, can I drop a plug here, Ben? Okay, yeah, no. Um, the, the Renew America movement endorsed 21 middle-of-the-road candidates today, uh, ranging from uh, Liz Cheney uh, to... Uh, uh, Alyssa Slotkin and Abigail Spanberger, uh, and those are the types of politicians. They, they disagree a lot on policy, but they agree on democracy. They're all people that I w I'm going to support, and I think Renew America is supporting. There you go. Plug over. I, I, uh, just on the John Eastman thing, um, uh, th there was a lot of there. There's been um, a lot of criticism about Fed sock leaving uh, the Federalist Society, leaving up um, his um, um, having a web page, um, a John Eastman web page. Um, I was wondering what, uh, and uh, I was wondering if you had thoughts about that. I, I do, um, actually. Uh, so just to just so that everybody's clear, I am still a member of the Federalist Society. Um, uh, because I remain a reasonably conservative lawyer. Uh, and indeed, I've been a member of the Federalist Society longer than almost everybody in the world since I joined in 1983, and it was formed in 1982. So, so it's pretty hard to, to get there longer than Chicago I. Chicago guy. I'm a University of Chicago you, so you actually so, came out of ground zero in FedSoc. That is correct. I, I, I knew I knew Lee. Lieberman and and, and, yeah. and Steve Calabresi when they were when they were just kids and just cool. Um, so like with so, just uh, for uh, those of you who don't know FedSoc history, when Paul says he you know he joined in eighty three, the FedSoc dates from U Chicago in eighty two. So it's like you know that's like almost like there you know at the founding. It was pretty much. So I'll say I'll say two things in response, Scott. The first is, in terms of keeping up a bio web page, um, they've got a web page basically for everybody who's ever spoken at one of their conferences. And, you know, so they have a web page for Elizabeth Warren uh, as well. And if they were to take him down as a historical matter, um, they'd probably as likely be accused of, of, of whitewashing history as anything else. Yeah, so, so keeping up the question is you know what is his future ongoing role in the in the federalist society and how do they change what he does after these events and i'm not an officer so i have no direct knowledge but i have read that mr eastman has complained that he has been deplatformed by the federalist society and disinvited from um a, a number of events to which he would normally, at which he would normally be in attendance. Uh, so he, he, um, I forget whose blog I wrote it on, but they published a note from him 
it, that was so it was from Eastman himself saying that the Federalist Society won't let him on anymore. And you know, I will leave it to others to decide whether that's the right thing or the wrong thing, whether the Federalist Society should publicize that or not. But simply as a factual matter, I think keeping the page up is is okay because it's a matter of historical accuracy and reference to keep up a listing of everybody who's ever been a participant. And John has been a participant for, for 20 years. So you can't like, it, I, I don't want to get into the, you know, to the communist barrier, you know, erasing barrier from the pictures on the, on the mausoleum above, above Lenin's tomb sort of thing. Uh, and as forward going, it seems like, uh, you know, they're doing it. They haven't done it publicly, which we can talk about whether they should do that not, or not. But but it seems it, it appears that he's been rendered persona non grata by his uh, uh, democratic apostasy. All right, uh, we are almost out of time. But if you uh... Uh, have questions for Paul, this is a good time to get them in. We only have one on the queue, and it is from Paula, who asks me to read it for her. Uh, Paul, are there any examples of civil litigation succeeding against a company because of its failure to maintain, I assume, cybersecurity, or is this a fruitless effort? It is not fruitless, but the instances are very, very rare. Um, the main reason is that most states have laws that uh, immunize uh, companies under tort law for purely economic losses. If they direct those suits to contract law. And of course, when you sign, when you took a service from Facebook or Google or whatever, you clicked through a contract that basically said you have no rights. Um, there are a couple of um, rare exceptions to that. Uh, one that I'm aware of in uh, uh, New England involved a bank and a company called Pat. Pat's Construction Company, uh, and um, uh, if uh, Ben, if, I, if you want, I can try and find the site while we're talking and drop it into chat, or not. That's up to you. But but the answer basically is no. And I often give a talk uh, about this in which I say that cybersecurity is coming up quickly on its Pinto moment. The Pinto being you know. The, the exploding car. For years, car manufacturers were protected from liability, and uh, the rule was caveat emptor. You bought it, you own it, it's your problem. And then the Pinto exploded, and that Ralph Nader's unsafe at any speed created a complete transformation of liability. And now car manufacturers who manufacture bad cars uh, pay money, and that's why we have safer cars. Soon, we're going to have a um, a uh, uh, a pin a Ford Pinto moment that will be the uh, end, I think, of uh, shrink wrap click through immunity from liability of cyber companies, whether they're software or hardware manufacturers. My opinion. And and what will be the you know unsafe at any speed had a great effect partly because it had a great title. What is the title of the cybersecurity liability book that will have the Nader-like effect? Tesla's car killed me. Mr. Botts, the floor is yours. Uh, good afternoon, uh, Paul. It's really great to see and hear you. Um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on the continued use of BGP uh, for router-to-router -router communications, um, it just seems just simply to be a tool today used by the Chinese to 
to intermittently uh, listen to all communications to and from the Pentagon or other adversaries uh, when convenient? Well, that's a, uh, that's a really wonderful question. Um, BGP, the Border Gateway Protocol, uh, uh, for those who don't know, was designed for ease of use and communication. Uh, rough consensus and running code is how the Internet Engineering Task Force characterizes its objective, which is to say it wasn't built for security. And uh, everybody is well aware of how deeply flawed BGP and many of our other internet protocols are in terms of security. The challenge, and it's a deep one, is to build a new protocol that is retrospectively compatible, that is backward compatible to the existing architecture of the internet. And uh, my understanding, and now you're getting to and slightly beyond the limits of my technical understanding. So if I say this wrong, somebody who knows a little better on the on, on board like uh, uh, like Mike Godwin might, might actually correct me, uh, will, is that they're working to try and reconfigure it, re, rebuild it with greater security protocols involved, but that's proving very difficult. So unless you want to burn the whole thing down and start over again, uh, we're not going to see BGP uh, as a security backbone anytime soon. So, can I, so I literally taught BGP oh, good. yesterday. So can I just can I just talk for sixty seconds just to like just because it's in my head? Um, so what? So I mean, everything that Paul said, of course, is correct. Um, I just add that, like, what BGP is is that. So the internet, right, is like a, is a network of networks, um, right? So like your ISP talks to Yale, talks to Intel, talks to General Motors, right? And so the way in which um, different networks know what IP addresses the other networks are using is through BGP. So BGP allows the broadcast of like, hey, if you want to send it to this uh, uh, message to to these um, addresses, send it to me, or I can I know where to get it. And the problem with BGP is that it's really based on trust. Um, because when BGP started, there weren't that many networks to connect and everyone kind of knew each other. And it's kind of kludgy. Um, they just wanted to make it work. Now there's like close to, at least in terms of they allocated close to 100,000 um, of these networks called autonomous systems. And, and, and the worry, and it's happened before, is that malicious actors will just kind of announce fictitious routes and it will propagate through the internet because the internet, because BGP really is based on trust and packets will go where they're not supposed to go. And this happened in 2011 when all of YouTube went to Pakistan and what happened in, um, with Facebook two weeks ago where because of some unrelated problem, Facebook withdrew its routing announcements to the internet and BGP took it back and nobody knew where to find the, um, the specific kinds of servers um, that Facebook uses. So the question is like, how, like this is su it's such a central thing, like how do networks talk to each other in the internet, which is what it is, like how you change that um, seems so um, um, both essential and tricky. Talk about as you were saying, Paul, single point of failure. I mean, this is this is uh, this as bad as it gets. We are going to leave it there, Paul Rosenzweig. You're a great American, a great Costa Rican, uh, and uh, welcome back to DC. Um, uh, uh, we will be back tomorrow. It'll be cheese night. I think Kate will even be back. There will be cheese. There will be an evening. 
Uh, and all of that will be exactly 23 hours from now. Uh, will <coughs> Luke be with us, Genevieve? We'll see. He's, he's kind of a diva. <laughs> hey, Ben? Yeah? Hey, ben, when do you think the, the Eastman thing will be up on welfare? Shall we tease it? Um, uh, I think it will be up tomorrow, won't it? Okay. If you're interested in an, I used to also do law and, or I still do legal ethics and bar discipline. So if you want to read something about how that might work and John Eastman, um, take a read tomorrow. Yeah, Paul has a or the, or the next day. Analysis, analysis of the John Eastman case forthcoming. Uh, it is entitled John Eastman as Monoculture, a case study. <laughs> That last bit. Being no, said. it is not. <laughs> no. Um, we will see you tomorrow. And until then, Genevieve. We don't have fun anymore, but we still have BGP and trust. Yeah, <laughs> unfortunately. Sounds good. <laughs> see you nice. tomorrow, people.